0: This is episode 180 with Adidas Pro Runner, Dartmouth Track and Cross Country All-American and host of the More Than Running podcast, Ms. Dana Giordano. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to is about betting on yourself, taking risks, and making the most out of this amazing sport. You're going to hear from Boston Athletics Association runner Dana Giordano about her career trajectory from Dartmouth to Adidas-sponsored middle-distance podcaster. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all running the same course here. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, authors, and physical therapists who can help you elevate your running to new heights. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a wiser and more productive athlete. The Strength Running ecosystem extends far beyond the podcast, so don't miss our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash strengthrunning, and of course, where it all began, strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. And I couldn't have made this episode without the support of ExoSkin, our newest sponsor. They make seamless running apparel right here in the US of A that uses an interesting knitting technology that I've never seen before. I've been wearing some tights and a long sleeve shirt when it's been cold here in Denver. And they're incredible at keeping me warm, but they also wick heat. So you can use any of their gear in the summer too. Check out all their apparel at exoskin.us. From hats, shirts, shorts, tights, socks, toe socks, and compression and arm sleeves. All right, our guest today is a pro runner who's currently living in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts, a middle distance runner focusing on the 1500 to the 5K, Ms. Dana Giordano. She was an All American at Dartmouth University in New Hampshire before working for Reebok for a number of years after graduation. But she started feeling like she was missing the allure of training and competing, so she went all in, raced and improved until she could quit her job and sign a contract with Adidas. She's currently training with the BAA and also hosts the More Than Running podcast, where she features a unique perspective into the lives of other pro women athletes and female game changers in the sport. In this conversation... We're discussing Dana's journey from Dartmouth to working a normal job to her current role as Adidas and BAA runner and podcaster. This is a deep dive into the life of an underdog elite runner, how she makes her training happen in Boston winters, why her mindset is critical to accomplishing big things, and how she keeps running fun. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ms. Dana Giordano. All right. Hey, Dana. Welcome. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So, Dana, I'm excited to chat with you. You're a pro runner for Adidas. You're a former All American in cross country and track for Dartmouth. By the way, I went to the Dartmouth cross country camp as a uh, rising junior, I believe, and had a great time. Beautiful campus at Dartmouth. Um, so, now you're focusing on middle distance events from the 1500 to the mile. I want to explore your career a bit and your thoughts on training today, but I'd love to start with the fact that I believe you only went pro about two years ago. Is that right?
1: Yes. So after graduating from Dartmouth, I had already accepted a job offer because that's what people do. And at the time that I accepted the job offer, I hadn't run fast enough to even consider running professionally. I ended up having a nine second PR in four weeks, kept cutting town time in the 1500 and ended up getting third at NCAAs, Um, but it was all a little too late because it was right before the Olympic trials. And I was the first one who didn't qualify for the Olympic trials. So you don't get a lot of knocks at the door. So I started my job as a product manager at Reebok.
0: seems like a good job for an aspiring pro runner to work at an athletic company like that. So how did you go from maybe being a pro runner to getting a job what happened in between you starting to work you know cuz it, it's at that point right there that a lot of folks just stop training as much as they used to because it's hard to juggle you're starting a new career the demands of training at a high level are substantial how are you able to juggle all of the the demands of having a job and then on the side essentially trying to get your performances down even more so that you could potentially go pro?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think a lot of kids have dreams of being a professional runner and that never personally was my dream. I didn't have, I didn't write down anywhere that I wanted to be an Olympian. I just, I loved competing and I've always been a very competitive person, but it kind of, my longer story of running starts with I kind of, it kind of found me in a way, you know, I started my high school career after recovering from a major surgery and I was a soccer player and an ice hockey player. And then my high school track coach really is the one who like got me into running and I just kind of had a natural talent for it. But in a way I wasn't, I didn't fully understand like how much I loved the sport until it was gone in a way. So when I graduated from Dartmouth, I had a lot of success at Dartmouth. Um, Ivy League schools don't; our conference doesn't offer a fifth year, and I think I probably would have benefited from that extra little bit of time. But after four years, I competed for twelve seasons straight. I definitely was a little bit burnt out, and I think that I thought I was ready to move on and completely experience the rest of my life. And the first year out of school, I said it was like my year of yes, and. I had this conception that I had to sacrifice a lot because of running. And I was always giving things up because I had to run. And at Dartmouth, it was really challenging because, you know, three seasons, every student athlete experiences, you're traveling every other week. I took pretty much every single midterm and final in a hotel room for four years. And it just like was, it was really hard. And I was kind of, this is kind of crude, but like balls to the wall for four years. I was just like, going so hard with everything. And I thought that running was something that was taking away from my life and my experiences. And so I had this whole year, I was like, I'm not going to say no to anything because of running. Like, But I liked running. I love running. I keep, wanted to keep training. And while I was working at Reebok, I had an, an amazing manager there who ran track at Dartmouth, which is how I got the job too. And we were at this old campus where Reebok is now in the seaport District of Boston, but it was in the suburbs. And there was a track around the building that I worked in and a trail system. So it wasn't that hard to continue to train as my fitness. And I wanted to stay fit and healthy. So every day my team would go out and we'd go for a run at lunch every day. You know, that was just kind of the culture. So running was always there. Um, and I ended up training with a couple girls. Boston has this amazing running culture here, too, where it's not abnormal for regular people who work to get up at 6 in the morning on a Tuesday and do a track workout. Like, that's kind of, there's a ton of people who do that. Um, So I kind of was dabbling with all of it. And I think, kind of halfway through the year, I realized I was standing in bars and saying yes to going out on a Thursday and doing whatever, and realized that I wasn't having that much fun. And I wasn't that fulfilled by this lifestyle that everyone else was living. And I really missed that competitive aspect of pushing yourself and seeing what you can accomplish. And that was kind of when I woke up and started, you know, training a little bit harder in the spring. And because, as I mentioned before, I didn't have a fifth year, my peers who were doing their fifth year were accomplishing great things and had signed contracts and were doing all these things. And I was like, there's nothing different from me to Shannon Osika, you know, like we're the the same people, you know, like we've done the same thing. We've been on the same journey. Like, why did I give up on that dream? And I didn't think that I had it. And so that kind of progressed over, it's a longer story, but it kind of progressed over the two and a half, almost three years that I worked there to the point where I was like, I couldn't even focus at work because I wanted to try. Like I wanted to go for it. I needed to do the Olympic trials. I needed to see how far I could go with it. And it kind of was like a gradual build since graduation that I was like I have I have to try. I can't live the rest of my life without trying. That's a long story.
0: <laughs> no, I love it. And and I think it's really refreshing to hear someone who's as talented as you are, who's, you know, signed by a major shoe company talk about how at a certain point you were burned out and you didn't really want to compete the way that you were. And all of the demands of training really kind of made you feel like you were missing out on other aspects of your life. And and it's very rare that we hear that from pro runners because we think it's just 100% running. You know, you're eating, breathing, living, running all day, every day. And it's just nice to hear that that's not necessarily the case. You know, it's just another good piece of evidence that you are just a human being like the rest of us.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And for me, it honestly, it doesn't work doing just the running. Like it really, I think when I finally, I quit my job, there's, there's a lot more to like within the steps along the way, but I'm not trying to take the whole podcast to talk about that. But when I finally quit my job and I signed with the BAA and I decided to stay in Boston versus move somewhere else and join a different team. I still had my like working, I call it my working girl apartment, which I didn't spend any time in because you know, when you're working and you live in a city, you're you sleep in your apartment, but you're not really there during the day, pandemic aside. So this was back in 2019. And so after practice, I'd get home at noon, 1 p.m. and just sit in my apartment and be like, what do I do with myself? I was kind of consumed by this is too much free time. I've never had this much free time. I didn't have this much free time at Dartmouth. I don't know what to do. And it's taken me kind of until, uh, it took me a whole year to figure out how to like manage having that free time and how to fill it in a very fulfilling way.
0: How do you fill that time? Are you still struggling with that or have you found productive things to do with your time outside of practice?
1: Yeah. I think what I've, I've realized the most is that what I was personally struggling with was that, Running, to me before, felt like a selfish pursuit, you know, something that I was doing for myself. And I kind of reframed it to be, you know, like people tell you that they're inspired by what you're doing. They look up to you. They ask you for advice. And I think in a way, I was kind of fighting that. And when the pandemic hit, I had to like fully realize, okay, you're a professional athlete and you can't compete. So what is your value? And conveniently, I had started a podcast where I was interviewing mainly women who were connected to the sport just to elevate more um, female voices. And that was one of the ways that I was like, you know what? I like to tell stories. I think that's a really fabulous thing to do. And then I also went pretty hard on TikTok where I was connecting with younger high schoolers. Um, And it was through just like, that things there. I also coach at a high school. I volunteer at a hospital in normal times. Like it was all these little things. that I was like, I have the opportunity to give back and share my experience. And it's like a disservice uh, personally, I think, to not share what you're going through because it can help a lot of people.
0: Yeah. I love that you bring that up. I was recently talking to a guest on the podcast who is, you know, mentioning the fact that, um, you know, a lot of pro runners maybe 10 or 20 years ago, we wouldn't know anything about them. You know, we would know their name. We might know their list of personal bests, their potential race schedule. But that was it. And what I love today is that we are starting to get a better glimpse into the lives of elite runners. And I think it's just a great way to connect with fans of the sport, to build the sport itself. And, uh, you know, it's also a nice way just to showcase the fact that, You know you're living your own life too, and you have struggles and challenges and obstacles, just like every other runner out there. Um, You know your your talent is kind of separate from that, and and I think it's a great way to bring people into the sport and and show people that look, it might be hard. We're all trying to do hard things with these long runs and workouts and race schedules that we have, but it's manageable and it's doable, even with all of those challenges that we might have.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think sometimes we get in our own heads because of this comparison game. And once you finally get to a point where you realize that no one thinks about you as much as you think about yourself, then it's not that scary to share anything because, you know, there might be someone across the country who thinks I'm annoying on social media and I just don't care anymore because there's enough people who say it's helpful and they enjoy following my journey. So, I've done this thing where I kind of, you know, like Maria Kondo, she's like the art of tidying up. So her thing is like, you hold up an object and you say, does this bring me joy? And if it doesn't, you like, you throw it away and you pass it on or you donate it. And I've done that in my social media. You know, it's like, if something doesn't bring me joy, I don't follow it. I don't participate anymore. And I think it's just like getting older that you realize how little other people truly are thinking about you. And it's just kind of you're in your own head all the time.
0: Yeah, that's a, I think, really mature perspective to have. Uh, You know what perspective I'd love to hear from you too, Dana, is when you were transitioning from being an employee at Reebok to being a pro runner, it sounds like you had a very supportive work environment. You know, your boss was a former track runner for the same school you went to. And I just wonder, how were you thinking about risk at that point? Because, you know, you're working for a, a big company. I, I assume that you felt stable in that job. You felt like you had some good opportunities there for advancement. Were you thinking that quitting that job to pursue the dream of being a professional runner and seeing how far you might be able to go, was that risky in your mind? Were you thinking that you were putting your life on hold for a while? How were you kind of thinking about that whole issue?
1: Yeah, the the pandemic has definitely changed a lot of that. Um, but at the time when I was making the decision whether to leave, there was not a sing- I'm very grateful there was not a single person in my life that was like, that's a bad idea. Don't do it. And I think enough people in my circle knew me well enough that it's something I, I had to do or else I just would have been very unhappy. And I think that in when I quit my job, the original intent was 18 months to the Olympic trials and then see what happens. And now with the Olympic trials being moved, it's, it definitely like made it really scary. you know. I think that I was very nervous that my contract wasn't going to get re-signed. I took a very large financial cut signing a professional running contract. This isn't a lucrative sport. And I, I, was, I worked at a shoe company, so I, I knew all of this before. So I, I saved up for eight months preparing for, okay, in your first year if you don't make any prize money. Can you get by, you know, if you don't do much better? And I think that as I get older, those questions come more into play on the financial side of being able to support yourself. And, you know, your 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 goalposts just shift as you get older. You know, it's like, all right, maybe I don't always want to live with roommates the rest of my life. And one day I will want to buy a house. But right now, it's like, I just turned 27. The trials are gonna happen. And I think it's you kind of just have to like. For me, it's like what's tomorrow look like because I get if you're thinking six months down the road, everything's going to be completely different. So, yeah, I think the first six months were a lot harder switching into the pro world. And I've com- I'm totally realistic on my position. You know, I'm not. I've been one USA's. I'm. I'm definitely an underdog when it comes to this, and that is that's scary. You know, there's a lot of other people who have like that's truly their profession. And I think that's where professional running is really interesting, where kind of anyone can call themselves a pro, you know? And I think that when we go back to like Steve Prefontaine, like this whole like amateur versus pro thing, it's like there's no pro card in track. There's no like definition. It's like you kind of just give yourself the title because you were living a certain lifestyle and you've decided to commit to that. But there's also a ton of pro athletes who have other gigs as well. And we don't really, we don't talk about it at all. You know, it's kind of, I think there's a few athletes that really showcase like I work and run and do all this, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely rambling here, but I think that those are all things that I think about all the time. But right now it's like, you know, no one knows what the next six months is going to look like. I can only control like this week and this day.
0: Yeah. And right now it's the time in your life where you should probably be taking advantage of your talent, your youth, and this amazing opportunity that so few people have to take advantage of. And, you know, I just can't help but think that, you know, a lot of people might be thinking, oh, what if it doesn't work out? You know, I'm taking a pay cut. What if, what if this doesn't work? But also, what if it does? You know, what if you have a breakout race. I mean, one race might be all it takes to just catapult you into, you know, a, a whole different tier of pro runner. And and that is just so exciting to me. It's the potential, it's the excitement of what might be able to happen. And you'd never have known if you stayed at your job. And and I just think that it's, I was, you know, if if you were mentioning how your your network was all saying that you should definitely do this, they knew you, uh, I just think that's amazing because I think they encourage you to make the right choice.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I definitely appreciate it. I still think it's it's really funny because your circles are so small. So like the East Coast running circuit is tiny, and everyone really knows each other. But then I ran. I kind of consider my breakthrough race um, in December. I ran a 5K at the Sound Track Meet, and I knew that I was not running to my potential. My first, I had some injuries my first year as a pro. I knew it. Everyone on my team knew it. You know, it's just kind of this expectation. And then I ran a huge PR. I qualified for the Olympic trials. I ran 15, 18. And I watched back the race, and the announcers are like, very confused by Dana being there, you know? And it was the funniest thing because I was like, I'm not confused by me being here, but you're confused.
0: (laughs) 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 I love that. Well, that's amazing. I mean, here you are now. You're running for the BAA. Uh, my hometown is Boston. So you're, you're in my, my hometown. I love it. Uh, where are you running in Boston? Are you still there in the winter?
1: Yeah. So it's been a really interesting winter. We got away for a month, luckily where we were in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, my coach, Mark Carroll's, uh, he spent a lot of time training down there himself and they've got great dirt roads, but the pandemic has certainly made things very weird. So we returned to Boston and I mean, I went to Hanover. I should be prepared for this, but it's been a pretty tough winter. Last winter, we were running on the outdoor track in February. There was very little snow and we've had super snowy winter and we have no access to indoor tracks. So it's been hard. You know, It's not an ideal training setup, but these training camps are really expensive. So just to say, well, you should leave. It's like, I would love to, but it's kind of, you got to just buy into what program you're in and you know, the best people in the world. I think I saw a tweet the other day. that was like the best people in the world train on a dirt track. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And I'm just trying to keep that mentality of what I, what I do have versus what I don't have right now.
0: Yeah. I might've seen that tweet. Was that Steve Magnus?
1: I think so. One of those guys I'm, I'm too much on everything.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, that's great. I mean, I remember running in Boston, uh, and then I went to school at Connecticut college. So my winters weren't really that much better down there in new London. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't believe that you don't have access to an indoor track. If you know, some, you know, whether it's the BU track, the MIT indoor track, there's so many great schools in the Boston area,
1: indoor tracks to Reggie Lewis, Reggie Lewis is currently a vaccination center. Um, the most indoor tracks are either testing sites or vaccination centers. And it's also every track is tied to a university. And because Boston was hit so hard early in the pandemic, I think that people take things really seriously here and there's, there's no, even the BU kids can't get on their own track. So this is everyone's pretty locked down here and we have been for a while. And, you know, the numbers, it's like COVID numbers tell a story. And I think that they're just trying to keep everyone safe and this isn't going to be forever, but yeah, I miss an indoor track. And that kind of, I had a race recently, uh, this past weekend and I hadn't been an indoor track and, you know, my foot didn't feel so good. And I was the first time that I was on the indoor track was the race. And I was like, wow, (laughs) I haven't been an indoor track in over a year. This is hilarious.
0: (laughs) So what kind of accommodations are you making for the fact that you're, you don't have access to an indoor track, you're running I, presumably outside for most of your training. And we've had such a snowy winter. I mean, you know, this is kind of the eternal question that every runner asks themselves in winter. How do you get in the training? And, you know, now we're talking to someone, this is your job to get in the training. So how are you making accommodations for the crazy winter?
1: I think flexibility is the main thing where, okay, your workout day is a Tuesday. Okay, now it's a Wednesday and you have to be okay with that. And you can't do a double. So you do it on a bike and. So I think it's just having that mental flexibility to be able to get it through. And you know, if you can't run in the morning because it's too snowy, it could be fine in the afternoon. It's it's not ideal for sure. Um, but Harvard Tempo Loop is where we do most of our workouts. It's this very classic. It's twelve hundred. It's twelve hundred meters, quote unquote. Uh, they keep it very well maintained around the Harvard Athletic Campus. So that's where we've been doing a a lot a lot of laps.
0: it's funny you say that because I used to live in Central Square, Cambridge, right near MIT. And at the time I was running a lot. And in the winter, we would always run this. It was like 1.2 miles, maybe just about a mile around the MIT campus and their uh, indoor uh, track facility, just because they they were really good at plowing and keeping those roads clear. So, you know, I, I think the lesson here is colleges, universities are usually pretty good at plowing and shoveling some of their walkways and roads. So that's a good spot to look for, you know, some of those clear roads to get your training in.
1: And I don't like a treadmill, so I will avoid running on a treadmill at pretty much all cost. And I'm definitely in the, if you have the right clothing, you'll be fine.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, So Dana, I'd love to talk a little bit about your experience being a D1 runner and then your experience being a pro runner. What was the training environment like you know, being a being now being a pro versus being a collegiate runner for Dartmouth. I mean, that's a very good D1 program. And I just was wondering, what are the major differences between being a very good runner at a very good D1 program, and then being a professional runner, because it seems from the outside, that you have access to a lot of resources in both situations. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the the differences between the two might be interesting to parse because, you know, a lot of people think that if you're a D1 runner, you know, that you're pretty much a pro, you know, you don't have to go to class. And I know that obviously that's not true. But, you know, what is the major differences here?
1: Well, we definitely had to go to class. Uh, the The Dartmouth experience was you are student first. Academics are the most important thing. And Uh, thankfully we had coaches that understood that, you know, if you had to stay up super late, they would be more flexible and adjust things. But I really thrived at Dartmouth's environment just because it was super structured and I enjoyed that. You know, you knew how the ten at Dartmouth's on quarters. So a fall, winter, and then a spring one. So they're 10 weeks long. So you knew your whole term, like you got the first day on campus, you knew what your life would look like for the next week. Versus professional running, it's very flexible, you know. A little injury comes up, you move a race. You don't race as often. So I think I enjoyed racing a lot, but at the D1 level, you're not ever I felt like it was very hard to get into a fast race, especially at Dartmouth. You know, I think I didn't fully realize that until afterwards that Different types of D1 programs were kind of racing for faster times versus within my conference. It was very conference-oriented. Um, and we, you know, I would qualify for NCAAs, but I wasn't very competitive at NCAAs. And that was, the expectation was like, congrats, you qualified versus I know in a, lot of, a lot of other D1 programs. And I think the mentality is shifting even within the Ivy League conference to be like more competitive within the NCAA. Uh, But when I was there, it was only reserved for like a certain few people. Like my teammate, um, Abby D'Agostino, she was my recruiting host. And she was very competitive at the NCAA level. But most of us were kind of just in our own like regional, lower tier. Um, Yeah, so that was like a bigger difference. And then I think one of the largest differences I really – the collegiate system does it super well as far as support for like an athletic trainer every day you don't have that as a professional runner so you kind of need to build your own support system and like boston thank god is a phenomenal place for like kairos physios all these people but you kind of have to build those relationships yourself like it's on you as the individual versus on your team
0: yeah that's an interesting point and i feel like a lot of a lot of us look at pro runners and we think that everything is taken care of. You know, you have that sports psychologist, that physical therapist, the strength coach, the running coach, the uh, the trainer, you know, everyone is there to make sure that you are operating at your best, that you can put down a peak performance. But sometimes it's even harder than being in a, at a university because you you can't just walk into the athletic center and go to the trainer's office. You can't talk to your coach. Um, There's real limitations there. And uh, that must be really hard to have to build your own team. You know, what kind of resources exist for that process? Because I know like, you know, if if I turn pro tomorrow, which is not going to happen, Dana. (laughs) uh, You know, (laughs) I I wouldn't know where to start. I wouldn't even know where to go, what to do.
1: Yeah, I would say like, thankfully for me, I'm, I'm like a huge pupil person. So even when I was running in Boston before... Turning pro, like I enjoyed making connections with people and asking and reaching out. so if you're someone who's looking for like building your own network, I would just say asking a lot of people with their own personal experiences are and then feeling comfortable enough if something's not working. So thankfully, as a pro, a lot of people do want to help you, and sometimes it's just way too many cooks in the kitchen who are giving different pieces of advice. And that's the hardest part, I think, is kind of being like, thank you so much for offering that support, but like, I'm going to stick with this program and see how it's going. So I know some other professional groups do have more full-time staff. We kind of have um, medical stipends that we can go out and find those on people, which I prefer. Um, But yeah, it is definitely kind of a complicated thing, but I don't think that the a blanket, you know, everyone's going to see the same person would work. You know, we all have different bodies. We've all come from different training environments and training groups and coaches. So it I would say, you know, ask around what works for other people. And then finding people who like know what your goals are so like I have a massage therapist in town. We've been friends for a while and he knows my running style. He's seen me run at the track. He's a runner himself. He knows what I'm trying to do. So it's like very comforting to be like, okay, my whatever hurts. And he's like, all right, well, we'll fix it up enough so you can like do what you need to do versus sometimes I think that people who don't know the me- the mindset of a runner are kind of like, you should just stop running, you know? And you're like, that's not very helpful. I need to keep going.
0: Oh, we we runners hear that advice all the time, right? I think every runner has the story of going to a physical therapist who's not a runner, who doesn't have much experience with runners. And that's always the advice. Maybe you're not built for running more than 1.5 miles at a time. And that's just not going to work for us.
1: It's also unfair to the athlete because you're like, all right, well, but why do you think that? Can we try a couple things first? Like that I just so frustrating when you get that advice and so many people do or or your body's not right for running. What's up with that? That's terrible.
0: Yeah. And you know, I I'm, I'm like I said I'm from Boston, so my response is just going to be, well, I'm not a quitter. It seems like you are. Let's find someone new. You know, I'm I'm ready to just to get out of that office immediately as soon as someone says something like that.
1: Yeah, and there's so many different. Everyone thinks that their training protocol is the best, and that's what you want. You want that buy, and you want to be committed to the best. And I think that you have to have a certain amount of blinders on. On like, I believe in what I'm doing, and I think that's mainly for coaching. You know, like you have to trust your coach to a certain extent. Of I'm in this program. I've committed. I'm buying in. I'm gonna listen. But also, like, that communication of the back and forth, like, is also super essential of, all right, here's what – like, repeating back to the coach, like, here's what I'm hearing. Does that make sense to you? Like, that's something that I've worked on this past year, mainly being remote with my coach is, like, all right, I'm hearing that you want me to accomplish this. Is that correct? And, like, that's really helped our relationship virtually.
0: Yeah, I think any – Any virtual coaching situation, and I do a lot of virtual coaching myself, communication is probably the most important thing. Because, you know, when you're not in in person with someone, you can't see their fatigue levels, you can't see how they're running, you can't watch them do a workout, you know, you can't you know, visually experience their mindset and emotional state. And that's a big part of coaching, right? So, you know, I really rely on the athlete communicating to me how they're feeling, you know, how they responded to a particular workout or, you know, type of run that they're doing, because without that communication, you know, the coach can be often just left in the dark. Oh, yeah. I would love to talk more about uh, how you keep running fun, because I think that you've had this experience being a runner in, at the college setting. You've had this experience being a runner while you had a job. Now you've gone pro. So you've had this interesting, you know, multi-stage process of being a runner. And and I would think, and maybe correct me if this assumption is wrong, that once you turn pro, there's maybe fewer opportunities just to have joy with the sport because you have all these responsibilities. You're thinking about your sponsor commitments and all that. So what do you do to keep running fun and interesting and something that you look forward to doing every day?
1: Yeah, I think Jenny Simpson said it once somewhere and it's always stuck with me. She goes, it's not normal to want to run every day. And that was something super helpful for me to hear when I became pro because I was like, you know, you think that people just love it every single day. And that's so irrational. You know, it's like you're tired, you're fatigued. It's it's a hard sport to do. And I think one thing that's helped me a lot is I do have a, um, a sports psychologist um, who's a friend. And we've kind of just talked about, you know, How do you take the most like advantage of every day, you know? And for me, one of the strategies that I use is kind of like taking a moment in my car. I usually drive to practice. So if you don't drive, you can just right before you leave the door. I just take a moment and I just like assess my mood and like, okay, today I'm feeling a a little tired and kind of lethargic and don't really want to be here right now. And then I kind of just park that in the car. Leave to thyself, and I don't want it to like bring down my teammates. So that's one thing that, like, in the individual day to keep it that's not exactly fun, but just kind of like to be a good teammate and kind of keep that mentality and drive through like the hard days. But overall, to keep it fun, the best part is that it's the people for sure for me. And I used to joke that it would be easier for me to have a friend who lived in Colorado than Boston because normally you're on this amazing circuit where you're just traveling around the country and you get to see these people and meet new people. And I think track is the best sport in the world because it brings together such diversity of people. And we all live in our own little corners and have our own little lives. But when we get to track meets, you get to warm up and cool down with friends and make new relationships. And I think that when that day comes that I have to step away, that's probably what I'm going to miss the most is the like the camaraderie of the community. And when you finally get a taste of that, like everyone is just so happy to be there. And, uh, I really love that. And that's something that Boston has people are like Boston is such a hard place to train. I'm like, but the people like the people make up for, you know, you could train anywhere. You train at the most horrible place in the world, but if you had great people, it'd still be fun.
0: Yeah, for sure. Does podcasting help with this? Because it kind of puts you into more connection with other runners that you might not be able to, you know, interact with.
1: I think for podcasting, it's definitely fun, but I take it a little bit more seriously, almost like a a little job that I have. And I think that I definitely feel like I have this platform to be able to elevate women. And I think that uh, like women don't receive enough media coverage and I just want to do a really good job. So I think that sometimes I do add a little bit more stress on it than fun because I want to do a really good job and I I'm new to it. You know, like my job is being a professional athlete. I'm not a professional podcaster. So I think that over time it's become more fun, but it definitely is hard. You know, it's, it's hard to hear your voice back. It's, did you ask the right questions? It's, uh, And there's so many podcasts out there. It's like, am I different enough than everyone else? So I try not to get in my own head about it. But I think that for me, like the podcasting is way more of, you know, building my skills outside of running and maybe that'll leverage into a future career for me. So I I enjoy, you know, the feminist side of it, promoting the sport from within. And then I also really enjoy like building my skills, my personal brand through it. So it's all fun, but it's a little bit more stressful, I guess.
0: Well, maybe that's a good thing. That means you're taking it seriously and you're trying to hold yourself to a high standard, just like you're running. So, you know, you're going to put high standards on yourself and you're going to expect that you meet them. And, you know, I can definitely say as a podcaster, it is fun, but it is an extraordinary amount of work. And uh, I do think that work is really rewarding. So I hope that you keep going with it. And I don't think you've mentioned it so far, but what's the name of your podcast?
1: Uh, my podcast is called More Than Running with Dana Giordano. And my producer is Chris Chavez, who is of Sidious Mag. So it's kind of a collaboration on their platform. And yeah, so I mainly interview women um, to tell their stories of kind of what we're doing here. You know, who are you outside of the sport? What are you passionate about? Um, and it kind of started with current pros, but also retired pros. So I'm like, why don't why don't people know the full story of Bobby Gibb and how she was truly the first person to run the marathon. And I'm kind of a, I'm kind of a definitely a running nerd. You know, I, I love all these little stories and I can get really passionate and excited about these, this world that I'm in. And I'm like, I just want to share this with more people because I personally have this opportunity that not a lot of people have within my sport. So yeah, there's been a lot of uh, fun, kind of experiences of being able to share. And it's, it's very, as you said, so rewarding. Um, But it is, it's very vulnerable too. It's your own voice. I want to say, you know, it's when it's your voice, every word matters. And I think in 2021, more than any other time in my life, it's like words are what matters. We're not together. So what you say is the most important thing.
0: Yeah. I think that's really important and powerful. And Uh, I love that you brought up Bobby Gibbs. We got as a gift. uh, There's a children's book that we have for our kids. It's the story of Bobby Gibbs and how they said she couldn't run a marathon. And I, I, you know what, I'm going to include a link to the book in the show notes because I I think it's great. And uh, once in a while I'll find my kids just sitting on the floor, looking through the pictures of it. And and that's really rewarding for me. Um, Dana, you mentioned working with a, a sports psychologist. I'd love to talk with, With you for a few minutes about that, because I feel like this is such an important and and powerful and impactful way to improve your running. Uh, But a lot of people don't really go down that sports psych rabbit hole. Can you talk about, you know, besides that one story about getting kind of getting your head on straight before practice and leaving any negative emotions in your car before you head in for the team? You know, how has working with a sports psychologist helps your mindset around running. And is this something that you just started doing recently or or how long have you been working with a sports psych?
1: Yeah. So first I want to mention that it's definitely a privilege to be able to have that relationship. And I know sports uh, psychology is not that accessible right now. And I hope that that changes in the future. Um, I was really fortunate to connect with Tim Bailey who he's the husband of Priscilla Bailey, who's a coach at Cal Poly. And when we were at a training camp, we got reconnected because both of them used to be out of Harvard when I was competing. So we've really known of each other and kind of been in the same circle for a long time. But when I was at this training camp, I had a little injury and we just kind of, we connected then and I was having a huge issue where I think one of my main strengths as a collegiate runner was being fearless and you know fully confident running for the gun knowing i was knowing i could win maybe it was kind of blinders on again but like that's the style that i like to run i like to front run and i think i lost a lot of that confidence when i got hurt as a pro as you said you know it's high stakes and i was in these races and i was in a 4 minute ish race for the 1500 And my mind was thinking about literally anything else. I was thinking about like what my next meal was going to be. Like my mind was so not in the race. It was scary. And I had never had that. And it was like kind of the opposite of I've had a fair amount of uh, those flow experiences. Like the chick said me, hi, you know, like you're fully present. And I think that's how I raced a lot in college was I was able to tap into that as a product of being very comfortable and supported in my environment. And then I pretty much had the opposite experience when I was racing my first season as a pro where I do not know where my head was. It was somewhere else. And we kind of worked for a long time on that. Just, you know, it didn't end up going well that season, but I think that this race this past December was kind of accumulation of a whole year and a half worth of work of, you know, here are the mantras that you use. Here are the positive affirmations. Here's how you connect during the race. Um, here's how you segment a race into different parts. So there's just so many strategies that I fully use. And a very a here's like a, a small example, but one of my like affirmations for myself is kind of I'm strong and powerful and in full control. And if there's ever like any really hard workout where I'm like, can I do this? Can I not? I always come back to just those words, because I've worked on being able to use them. So these are all strategies that you don't necessarily need a sports psychologist to help you with. You know, they're they're out there, they're in the world. Like you can explore them, um, but I would say it is it's helpful. You know, just to have another person in your in your corner if it's available.
0: Yeah, and and I think it's just fascinating to me how important mindset is to your mental relationship with the sport. So you know, you're talking about how you felt supported in college and you were really confident you went after it in races you led from the gun you know you were in a it seems like an aggressive confident racer and, and it's interesting how one injury could really mess up your mental relationship with racing and the sport like that and in, in a sport like running where you know it's not like other sports where you're trying to not be uncomfortable you know you could be a good soccer player without being uncomfortable but in distance running the more you can tolerate the more you can actually pile on top of yourself in a race and and endure that the better you're going to be and you know the the mindset that you have about racing about you know being fully engaged is just so critical and and I'm glad to see that you know, you're starting to get back to your roots as a college runner and, and be more aggressive because I just think that's the only way to race, you know, being confident, executing on your strategy and just having that, you know, good, positive relationship to racing because, you know, it's hard. You could, you could sit there and have every negative reaction to, to a race before the gun even starts.
1: Oh yeah. I be, they say it all the time, like you lose before you get to the starting line, not the time. And that's totally true. You see it where with a lot of, um, a lot of races where you hear someone, someone's in the race, like that they're an Olympian or they've – but you have no idea where people are coming from, where they're at in their training, what their goal is in the race. So you key yourself off of someone else and you have a horrible day because you weren't running your race. You're running their race. And I've seen that time and time and again. And that's something that's a hard lesson to learn. But I think that for where I lost the confidence was I was super lucky where – you know, every season you get better. And I, that happened for me from when I picked up running in the ninth grade till my senior year of college. You PR every season, you just get better. And I think that that was a little foolish. And I was lucky in that way. Uh, I was like, this is just how it goes. You know, like you work hard, input, output, right? Um, but when the inputs were off, it was just like, I'm putting so much into this and I'm getting nothing out. Like that's when it fully was like identity crisis of where's my head at?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, you're, you're, isn't that such a drug for runners? The, the improvement, the PR, the season after season of getting better and just, oh my God, you're, you're explaining it. And I'm just getting flashbacks to my high school and college days of exactly that, just all kinds of improvement. And I think that's important when you first start running, It, it hooks you on the sport. And I think it gives you more longevity in the sport as well, because you're just having so much fun and you're so excited by, you know, the, the progress that you're making. Um, Dana, this has been a lot of fun and, and I hope the best for you. I'm excited that you're, you're training in a great place in Boston. Uh, our listeners can connect with you on Instagram if they would like at Dana underscore GIO. And then you're on Twitter at Dana underscore GIO six. Is that right?
1: Yeah. You know, they didn't let me have both names. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> I hate it when they do that.
1: People think my last name is Gio, which is kind of funny. I'm like, no, it's Giordano, <laughs> but close.
0: <laughs> now, can we expect some race results soon? Are you, are you registered for any right now?
1: So I recently ran this past weekend at the New Balance Grand Prix, but apparently bank tracks and my foot just don't get along. So I'm taking a little step back right now and kind of playing it by ear. And then we'll go back out to altitude and Probably hit it pretty hard uh, early, late April, early May.
0: Awesome. Well, how did the 5K go for you?
1: Oh, I just ran a 1500. Oh,
0: it was a 1500 on the bank track.
1: (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, I had a, um, I had a very funny experience where to go to do any races, you have to get uh, a COVID test and my COVID test result hadn't come back yet. And so I wasn't able to do the pre-meet at the track. And I hadn't been on a bank track in over a year, and I've been dealing with some kind of foot pain, and it, uh, it did not get along when I was on the the race. So no excuses, looking forward. But yeah, it's we're all dealing with very weird problems that we don't normally have right now. So it's kind of like I gave myself the 24-hour rule to wallow in my sadness of not performing well, but then now we're just looking forward to what's next.
0: Well, you're exhibiting all that great sports psych uh, mindsets right there. You know, you're you're smiling about your poor performance. I, I love it. And you're looking forward. Uh, well, Dana, thanks so much for making some time to chat with me. Uh, I wish all the best for you. I hope your foot recovers and heals soon. Thank you. And, uh, and, and let's give a plug for your podcast one more time. What's the name of it?
1: More Than Running with Dana Giordano.
0: All right. I hope people check it out. Thanks, Dana. Thank you. And there we go. Thanks for listening to this episode with Dana. And don't forget to connect with her on social and check out her own podcast. Finally, another big shout out to our newest sponsor, Exoskin. You can see what they're all about at exoskin.us. I was introduced to this company a few months ago and have been impressed with the quality of the shorts and shirt that I've been wearing. They have this patented knitting technology that keeps you warm in the winter and cool in the summer. And I actually made this mistake of thinking that their gear was only for cold temperatures, but it's been used in Death Valley races. The heat dissipation must be pretty good. And it may also be so versatile because there aren't any seams, so the risk of chafing or blisters or hot spots is a lot lower. I'm also loving that they have powerful anti-odor properties, so my wife isn't complaining about my gear so much anymore. (laughs) They use both copper and a synthetic treatment to reduce odor and friction and wick moisture, plus it's molecularly bonded, so it doesn't come out in the wash. My rep at Exoskin actually told me about a client of his who has worn the same pair of socks for three months without washing them. He just rinses them a few times in the sink every week, and they still don't smell. Now, I'm not sure if my testing is going to go to those lengths, so I'll just take their word for it. You can check them out at exoskin.us and be sure to look at how the fabric is created. It has three-dimensional knitting that makes this gear more comfortable than you'd think. That's exoskin.us to see all their shirts, tights, socks, compression sleeves, and more. Thanks for listening all. I so appreciate you. Until next time.